Section 24 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 24. Civic Banquets. I would gladly have ended my oratorical career then and there forever, but was often placed in a similar or worse position, and compelled to meet it as best I might, for this was one of the necessities of an office which I had voluntarily taken on my shoulders, and beneath which I might be crushed by no moral delinquency on my own part, but could not shirk without cowardice and shame. My subsequent fortune was various. Once, though I felt it to be a kind of imposture, I got a speech by heart, and doubtless it might have been a very pretty one, only I forgot every syllable at the moment of need, and had to improvise another as well as I could. I found it a better method to prearrange a few points in my mind, and trust to the spur of the occasion, and the kind aid of Providence, for enabling me to bring them to bear." The presence of any considerable proportion of personal friends generally dumbfounded me. I would rather have talked with an enemy in the gate. Invariably, too, I was much embarrassed by a small audience, and succeeded better with a large one, the sympathy of a multitude possessing a buoyant effect, which lifts the speaker a little way out of his individuality, and tosses him towards a perhaps better range of sentiment than his private one. Again, if I rose carelessly and confidently, with an expectation of going through the business entirely at my ease, I often found that I had little or nothing to say, whereas if I came to the charge in perfect despair, and at a crisis when failure would have been horrible, it once or twice happened that the frightful emergency concentrated my poor faculties, and enabled me to give definite and vigorous expression to sentiments which an instant before looked as vague and far off as the clouds in the atmosphere. On the whole, poor as my own success may have been, I apprehend that any intelligent man with a tongue possesses the chief requisite of oratorical power, and may develop many of the others, if he deems it worth while to bestow a great amount of labor and pains on an object which the most accomplished orators, I suspect, have not found altogether satisfactory to their highest impulses. At any rate, it must be a remarkably true man who can keep his own elevated conception of truth, when the lower feeling of a multitude is assailing his natural sympathies, and who can speak out frankly the best that there is in him, when by adulterating it a little, or a good deal, he knows that he may make it ten times as acceptable to the audience. This slight article on the civic banquets of England would be too wretchedly imperfect, without an attempted description of a Lord Mayor's dinner at the Mansion House in London. I should have preferred the annual feast at Guildhall, but never had the good fortune to witness it. Once, however, I was honoured with an invitation to one of the regular dinners, and gladly accepted it, taking the precaution, nevertheless, though it hardly seemed necessary, to inform the city king, though a mutual friend, that I was no fit representative of American eloquence, 
and must humbly make it a condition that I should not be expected to open my mouth except for the reception of his lordship's bountiful hospitality. The reply was gracious and acquiescent, so that I presented myself in the great entrance hall at the mansion-house at half-past six o'clock in a state of most enjoyable freedom from the pusillanimous apprehensions that often tormented me at such times. The mansion-house was built in Queen Anne's days, in the very heart of old London, and is a palace worthy of its inhabitant, were he really as great a man as his traditionary state and pomp would seem to indicate. Times are changed, however, since the days of Whittington, or even of Hogarth's industrious apprentice, to whom the highest imaginable reward of lifelong integrity was a seat in the Lord Mayor's chair. People nowadays say that the real dignity and importance have perished out of the office, as they do sooner or later out of all earthly institutions, leaving only a painted and gilded shell like that of an Easter egg, and that it is only second-rate and third-rate men who now condescend to be ambitious of the mayoralty. I felt a little grieved at this, for the original emigrants of New England had strong sympathies with the people of London, who were mostly Puritans in religion and parliamentarians in politics in the early days of our country, so that the Lord Mayor was a potentate of huge dimensions in the estimation of our forefathers, and held to be hardly second to the Prime Minister of the Throne. The true great men of the city now appear to have aims beyond city greatness, connecting themselves with national politics and seeking to be identified with the aristocracy of the country. In the entrance hall I was received by a body of footmen dressed in a livery of blue coats and buff breeches, in which they looked wonderfully like American revolutionary generals, only bedizened with far more lace and embroidery than those simple and grand old heroes ever dreamed of wearing. There were, likewise, two very imposing figures, whom I should have taken to be military men of rank, being arrayed in scarlet coats and large silver epaulets, but they turned out to be officers of the Lord Mayor's household, and were now employed in assigning to the guests the places which they were respectively to occupy at the dinner-table. Our names, for I had included myself in a little group of friends, were announced, and, ascending the staircase, we met his lordship in the doorway of the first reception-room, where, also, we had the advantage of a presentation to the Lady Mayoress. As this distinguished couple retired into private life at the termination of their year of office, it is inadmissible to make any remarks, critical or laudatory, on the manners and bearing of two personages suddenly emerging from a position of respectable mediocrity into one of preeminent dignity within their own sphere. Such individuals almost always seem to grow nearly or quite to the full size of their office. If it were desirable to write an essay on the latent aptitude of ordinary people for grandeur, we have an exemplification in our own country, and on a scale incomparably greater than that of the mayoralty, though invested with nothing like the outward magnificence that gilds and embroiders the latter. If I have been correctly informed, 
the Lord Mayor's salary is exactly double that of the President of the United States, and yet is found very inadequate to his necessary expenditure. There were two reception rooms, thrown into one by the opening of wide folding doors, and though in an old style, and not yet so old as to be venerable, they are remarkably handsome apartments, lofty as well as spacious, with carved ceilings and walls, and at either end a splendid fireplace of white marble, ornamented with sculptured wreaths of flowers and foliage. The company were about three hundred, many of them celebrities in politics, war, literature, and science, though I recollect none preeminently distinguished in either department but it is certainly a pleasant mode of doing honor to men of literature, for example, who deserve well of the public, yet do not often meet it face to face, thus to bring them together under genial auspices in connection with persons of note in other lines. I know not what may be the Lord Mayor's mode or principle of selecting his guests, nor whether, during his official term, he can proffer his hospitality to every man of noticeable talent in the wide world of London, nor, in fine, whether his lordship's invitation is much sought for or valued. But it seemed to me that this periodical feast is one of the many sagacious methods which the English have contrived for keeping up a good understanding among different sorts of people. Like most other distinctions of society, however, I presume that the Lord Mayor's card does not often seek out modest merit, but comes at last when the recipient is conscious of the bore and doubtful about the honor. One very pleasant characteristic, which I never met with at any other public or partially public dinner, was the presence of ladies. No doubt they were principally the wives and daughters of city magnates, and if we may judge from the many sly allusions in old plays and satirical poems, the city of London has always been famous for the beauty of its women, and the reciprocal attractions between them and the men of quality. Be that as it might, while straying hither and thither through those crowded apartments, I saw much reason for modifying certain heterodox opinions which I had imbibed, in my transatlantic newness and rawness, as regarded the delicate character and frequent occurrence of English beauty. To state the entire truth, being at this period some years old in English life, my taste, I fear, had long since begun to be deteriorated by acquaintance with other models of feminine loveliness than it was my happiness to know in America. I often found, or seemed to find, if I may dare to confess it, in the persons of such of my dear countrywomen as I now occasionally met, a certain meagerness, heaven forbid that I should call it scrawniness, a deficiency of physical development, a scantiness, so to speak, in the pattern of their material make, a paleness of complexion, a thinness of voice, all of which characteristics, nevertheless, only made me resolve so much the more sturdily to uphold these fair creatures as angels, because I was sometimes driven to a half-acknowledgment that the English ladies, looked at from a lower point of view, were perhaps a little finer animals than they. 
The advantages of the latter, if any they could really be said to have, were all comprised in a few additional lumps of clay on their shoulders and other parts of their figures. It would be a pitiful bargain to give up the ethereal charm of American beauty in exchange for a half a hundredweight of human clay. At a given signal we all found our way into an immense room called the Egyptian Hall. I know not why, except that the architecture was classic, and as different as possible from the ponderous style of Memphis and the pyramids. A powerful band played inspiringly as we entered, and a brilliant profusion of light shone down on two long tables, extending the whole length of the hall, and a cross-table between them, occupying nearly its entire breadth. Glass gleamed and silver glistened on an acre or two of snowy damask, over which were set out all the accompaniments of a stately feast. We found our places without much difficulty, and the Lord Mayor's chaplain implored a blessing on the food, a ceremony which the English never omit, at a great dinner or a small one, yet consider, I fear, not so much a religious rite as a sort of preliminary relish before the soup. The soup, of course, on this occasion was turtle, of which, in accordance with immemorial custom, each guest was allowed two platefuls, in spite of the otherwise immitigable law of table decorum. Indeed, judging from the proceedings of the gentlemen near me, I surmised that there was no practical limit except the appetite of the guests and the capacity of the soup tureens. Not being fond of this civic dainty, I partook of it but once, and then only in accordance with the wise maxim, always to taste a fruit, a wine, or a celebrated dish at its indigenous site, and the very fountainhead of turtle soup, I suppose, is in the Lord Mayor's dinner-pot. It is one of those orthodox customs which people follow for half a century without knowing why, to drink a sip of rum punch in a very small tumbler after the soup. It was excellently well brewed, and it seemed to me almost worth while to sup the soup for the sake of sipping the punch. The rest of the dinner was catalogued in a bill of fare printed on delicate white paper within an arabesque border of green and gold. It looked very good, not only in the English and French names of the numerous dishes, but also in the positive reality of the dishes themselves, which were all set on the table to be carved and distributed by the guests. This ancient and honest method is attended with a good deal of trouble, and a lavish effusion of gravy, yet by no means bestowed or dispensed in vain, because you have thereby the absolute assurance of a banquet actually before your eyes, instead of a shadowy promise in the bill of fare, and such meagre fulfillment as a single guest can contrive to get upon his individual plate. I wonder that Englishmen, who are fond of looking at prize oxen in the shape of butcher's meat, do not generally better estimate the aesthetic gourmandism of devouring the whole dinner with their eyesight, before proceeding to nibble the comparatively few morsels which, after all, the most heroic appetite and widest stomachic capacity of mere mortals can enable even an alderman really to eat. There fell to my lot three delectable things enough, 
which I take pains to remember, that the reader may not go away wholly unsatisfied from the barmecide feast to which I have bidden him. A red mullet, a plate of mushrooms, exquisitely stewed, and a pair of ptarmigan, a bird of the same family as the grouse, but feeding high up towards the summit of the Scotch mountains, whence it gets a wild delicacy of flavor very superior to that of the artificially nurtured English game-fowl. All of the other dainties have vanished from my memory, as completely as those of Prospero's banquet after Ariel had clapped his wings over it. The band played at intervals, inspiriting us to new efforts, as did likewise the sparkling wines which the footman supplied from an inexhaustible cellar, and which the guests quaffed, with little apparent reference to the disagreeable fact that there comes a to-morrow morning after every feast. As long as that shall be the case, a prudent man can never have full enjoyment of his dinner. Nearly opposite to me, on the other side of the table, sat a young lady in white, who I am sorely tempted to describe, but dare not, because not only the supereminence of her beauty, but its peculiar character would cause the sketch to be recognized, however rudely it might be drawn. I hardly thought that there existed such a woman outside of a picture frame or the covers of a romance not that I had ever met with her resemblance even there, but, being so distinct and singular an apparition, she seemed likelier to find her sisterhood in poetry and picture than in real life. Let us turn away from her, lest a touch too apt should compel her stately and cold and soft and womanly grace to gleam out upon my page, with a strange repulsion and unattainableness in the very spell that made her beautiful. At her side, and familiarly attentive to her, sat a gentleman of whom I remember only a hard outline of the nose and forehead, and such a monstrous portent of a beard that you could discover no symptom of a mouth except when he opened it to speak or to put in a morsel of food. Then, indeed, you suddenly became aware of a cave hidden behind the impervious and darksome shrubbery. There could be no doubt who this gentleman and lady were. Any child would have recognized them at a glance. It was Bluebeard and a new wife, the loveliest of the series, but with already a mysterious gloom overshadowing her fair young brow traveling in their honeymoon, and dining among other distinguished strangers at the Lord Mayor's table. After an hour or two of valiant achievement with knife and fork came the dessert, and at the point of the festival where finger-glasses are usually introduced, a large silver basin was carried round to the guests containing rose-water, into which we dipped the ends of our napkins, and were conscious of a delightful fragrance instead of that heavy and weary odor, the hateful ghost of a defunct dinner. This seems to be an ancient custom of the city, not confined to the Lord Mayor's table, but never met with westward of Temple Bar. During all the feast, in accordance with another ancient custom, the origin or purport of which I do not remember to have heard, there stood a man in armor, 
with a helmet on his head behind his lordship's chair. When the after-dinner wine was placed on the table, still another official personage appeared behind the chair, and proceeded to make a solemn and sonorous proclamation, in which he enumerated the principal guests, comprising three or four noblemen, several baronets and plenty of generals, members of Parliament, aldermen, and other names of the illustrious, one of which sounded strangely familiar to my ears, ending in some such style as this, And other gentlemen and ladies here present, the Lord Mayor drinks to you all in a loving cup, giving a sort of sentimental twang to the two words, and sends it round among you. And forthwith the loving cup, several of them indeed, on each side of the tables, came slowly down with all the antique ceremony. The fashion of it is thus. The Lord Mayor, standing up and taking the covered cup in both hands, presents it to the guest at his elbow, who likewise rises, and removes the cover for his lordship to drink, which, being successfully accomplished, the guest replaces the cover and receives the cup into his own hands. He then presents it to his next neighbor, that the cover may be again removed for himself to take a draught, after which the third person goes through a similar maneuver with a fourth, and he with a fifth, until the whole company find themselves inextricably intertwisted and entangled in one complicated chain of love. When the cup came into my hands, I examined it critically, both inside and out, and perceived it to be an antique and richly ornamented silver goblet, capable of holding about a quart of wine. Considering how much trouble we all expended in getting the cup to our lips, the guests appeared to content themselves with wonderfully moderate potations. In truth, nearly or quite the original quart of wine being still in the goblet, it seemed doubtful whether any of the company had more than barely touched the silver rim before passing it to their neighbors, a degree of abstinence that might be accounted for by a fastidious repugnance to so many competitors in one cup or possibly by a disapprobation of the liquor. Being curious to know all about these important matters, with a view of recommending to my countrymen whatever they might usefully adopt, I drank an honest sip from the loving cup, and had no occasion for another, ascertaining it to be claret of a poor original quality, largely mingled with water, and spiced and sweetened. It was good enough, however, for a merely spectral or ceremonial drink, and could never have been intended for any better purpose. The toasts now began in the customary order, attended with speeches neither more nor less witty and ingenious than the specimens of table eloquence which had heretofore delighted me. As preparatory to each new display, the herald, or whatever he was, behind the chair of state, gave awful notice that the right honourable the Lord Mayor was about to propose a toast. His lordship being happily delivered thereof, together with some accompanying remarks, the band played an appropriate tune, and the herald again issued proclamation to the effect that such or such nobleman or gentleman, general, dignified clergyman, or what not, was going to respond to the right honourable the Lord Mayor's toast. Then, if I mistake not, 
there was another prodigious flourish of trumpets and twanging of stringed instruments, and finally the doomed individual, waiting all this while to be decapitated, got up and proceeded to make a fool of himself. A bashful young earl tried his maiden oratory on the good citizens of London, and having evidently got every word by heart, even including, however he managed it, the most seemingly casual improvisations of the moment, he really spoke like a book, and made incomparably the smoothest speech I had ever heard in England. The weight and gravity of the speakers, not only on this occasion but all similar ones, was what impressed me as most extraordinary, not to say absurd. Why should people eat a good dinner, and put their spirits into festive trim with champagne, and afterwards mellow themselves into a most enjoyable state of quietude, with copious libations of sherry and old port, and then disturb the whole excellent result by listening to speeches as heavy as an after-dinner nap, and in no degree so refreshing. If the champagne had thrown its sparkle over the surface of these effusions, or if the generous port had shone through their substance with a ruddy glow of the old English humour, I might have seen a reason for honest gentlemen prattling in their cups, and should undoubtedly have been glad to be a listener. But there was no attempt nor impulse of the kind on the part of the orators, nor apparent expectation of such a phenomenon on that of the audience. In fact, I imagined that the latter were best pleased when the speaker embodied his ideas in the figurative language of arithmetic, or struck upon any hard matter of business or statistics, as a heavy-laden bark bumps upon a rock in mid-ocean. The sad severity, the too earnest utilitarianism of modern life, have wrought a radical and lamentable change, I am afraid, in this ancient and goodly institution of civic banquets. People used to come to them a few hundred years ago for the sake of being jolly. They come now with an odd notion of pouring sober wisdom into their wine by way of wormwood bitters, and thus make such a mess of it that the wine and wisdom reciprocally spoil one another. Possibly the foregoing sentiments have taken a spice of acridity from a circumstance that happened about this stage of the feast, and very much interrupted my own further enjoyment of it. Up to this time my condition had been exceedingly felicitous, both on account of the brilliancy of the scene, and because I was in close proximity with three very pleasant English friends. One of them was a lady whose honoured name my readers would recognise as a household word, if I dared write it, another a gentleman, likewise well known to them, whose fine taste, kind heart, and genial cultivation are qualities seldom mixed in such happy proportion as in him. The third was the man to whom I owed most in England, the warm benignity of whose nature was never weary of doing me good who led me to many scenes of life, in town, camp, and country, which I never could have found out for myself, who knew precisely the kind of help a stranger needs, and gave it as freely as if he had not a thousand more important things to live for. 
Thus I never felt safer or cozier at anybody's fireside, even my own, than at the dinner-table of the Lord Mayor. Out of this serene sky came a thunderbolt. His lordship got up and proceeded to make some very eulogistic remarks upon the literary and commercial. I question whether those two adjectives were ever before married by a copulative conjunction, and they certainly would not live together in illicit intercourse of their own accord. The literary and commercial attainments of an eminent gentleman there present and then went on to speak of the relations of blood and interest between Great Britain and the aforesaid eminent gentleman's native country. Those bonds were more intimate than had ever before existed between two great nations throughout all history, and his lordship felt assured that the whole honorable company would join him in the expression of a fervent wish that they might be held inviolably sacred, on both sides of the Atlantic, now and for ever. Then came the same wearisome old toast, dry and hard to chew upon as a musty sea-biscuit, which had been the text of nearly all the oratory of my public career. The herald sonorously announced that Mr. So-and-so would now respond to his right honorable lordship's toast and speech, the trumpets sounded the customary flourish for the onset. There was a thunderous rumble of anticipatory applause, and finally a deep silence sank upon the festive hall. All this was a horrid piece of treachery on the Lord Mayor's part, after beguiling me within his lines on a pledge of safe conduct, and it seemed very strange that he could not let an unobtrusive individual eat his dinner in peace, drink a small sample of the mansion-house wine, and go away grateful at heart for the old English hospitality. If his lordship had sent me an infusion of ratsbane in the loving-cup, I should have taken it much more kindly at his hands. But I suppose the secret of the matter to have been somewhat as follows. All England, just then, was in one of those singular fits of panic excitement, not fear, though as sensitive and tremulous as that emotion, which, in consequence of the homogeneous character of the people, their intense patriotism, and their dependence for their ideas in public affairs on other sources than their own examination and individual thought, are more sudden, pervasive, and unreasoning than any similar mood of our own public. In truth, I have never seen the American public in a state at all similar, and believe that we are incapable of it. Our excitements are not impulsive like theirs, but, right or wrong, are moral and intellectual. For example, the grand rising of the North, at the commencement of this war, bore the aspect of impulse and passion only because it was so universal, and necessarily done in a moment, just as the quiet and simultaneous getting up of a thousand people out of their chairs would cause a tumult that might be mistaken for a storm. We were cool then, and have been cool ever since, and shall remain cool to the end, which we shall take coolly, whatever it may be. There is nothing which the English find so difficult to understand in us as this characteristic. 
They imagine us, in our collective capacity, a kind of wild beast, whose normal condition is savage fury, and are always looking for the moment when we shall break through the slender barriers of international law and comity, and compel the reasonable part of the world, with themselves at the head, to combine for the purpose of putting us into a stronger cage. At times this apprehension becomes so powerful, and one man feels it a million do, that it resembles the passage of the wind over a broad field of grain, where you see the whole crop bending and swaying beneath one impulse, and each separate stalk tossing with the self-same disturbance as its myriad companions. At such periods all Englishmen talk with a terrible identity of sentiment and expression. You have the whole country in each man, and not one of them all, if you put him strictly to the question, can give a reasonable ground for his alarm. There are but two nations in the world, our own country and France, that can put England into this singular state. It is the united sensitiveness of a people extremely well-to-do, careful of their country's honor, most anxious for the preservation of the cumbrous and moss-grown prosperity which they have been so long in consolidating, and incompetent, owing to the national half-sightedness, and their habit of trusting to a few leading minds for their public opinion, to judge when that prosperity is really threatened. If the English were accustomed to look at the foreign side of any international dispute, they might easily have satisfied themselves that there was very little danger of a war at that particular crisis, from the simple circumstance that their own government had positively not an inch of honest ground to stand upon, and could not fail to be aware of the fact. Neither could they have met Parliament with any show of a justification for incurring war. It was no such perilous juncture as exists now, when law and right are really controverted on sustainable or plausible grounds, and a naval commander may at any moment fire off the first cannon of a terrible contest. If I remember it correctly, it was a mere diplomatic squabble in which the British ministers, with the politic generosity in which they are in the habit of showing towards their official subordinates, had tried to browbeat us for the purpose of sustaining an ambassador for an indefensible proceeding, and the American government, for God had not denied us an administration of statesmen then, had retaliated with staunch courage and exquisite skill, putting inevitably a cruel mortification upon their opponents, but indulging them with no pretense whatever for active resentment. Now the Lord Mayor, like any other Englishman, probably fancied that war was on the western gale, and was glad to lay hold of even so insignificant an American as myself, who might be made to harp upon the rusty old strings of national sympathies, identity of blood and interest, and community of language and literature, and whisper peace where there was no peace, in however weak an utterance and possibly his lordship thought, in his wisdom, that the good feeling which was sure to be expressed by a company of well-bred Englishmen at his august and far-famed dinner-table might have an appreciable influence on the grand result. 
Thus, when the Lord Mayor invited me to his feast, it was a piece of strategy. He wanted to induce me to fling myself, like a lesser Curtius, with a larger object of self-sacrifice, into the chasm of discord between England and America, and, on my ignominious demure, had resolved to shove me in with his own right honorable hands, in the hope of closing up the horrible pit forever. On the whole, I forgive his lordship. He meant well by all parties, himself who would share the glory, and me who ought to have desired nothing better than such a heroic opportunity, his own country, which would continue to get cotton and breadstuffs, and mine, which would get everything that men work with and wear. As soon as the Lord Mayor began to speak, I rapped upon my mind, and it gave forth a hollow sound, being absolutely empty of appropriate ideas. I never thought of listening to the speech, because I knew it all beforehand in twenty repetitions from other lips, and was aware that it would not offer a single suggestive point. In this dilemma I turned to one of my three friends, a gentleman whom I knew to possess an enviable flow of silver speech, and obtested him, by whatever he deemed holiest, to give me at least an available thought or two to start with, and once afloat I would trust to my guardian angel for enabling me to flounder ashore again. He advised me to begin with some remarks complimentary to the Lord Mayor, and expressive of the hereditary reverence in which his office was held. At least my friend thought that there would be no harm in giving his lordship this little sugar-plum, whether quite the fact or no, was held by the descendants of the Puritan forefathers. Thence, if I liked, getting flexible with the oil of my own eloquence, I might easily slide off into the momentous subject of the relations between England and America, to which his lordship had made such weighty allusion. Seizing this handful of straw with a death-grip, and bidding my three friends bury me honorably, I got upon my legs to save both countries, or perish in the attempt. The tables roared and thundered at me, and suddenly were silent again. But, as I have never happened to stand in a position of greater dignity and peril, I deem it a stratagem of sage policy here to close these sketches, leaving myself still erect in so heroic an attitude. End of section 24 Recording by Margaret Espayat, Orlando, Florida End of Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne